inflation, public sector strikes, tax rises, and one policy that doesn't sound like it's from the 1970s, the online safety bill. All tonight on Live Without Littlewood. Welcome to Live Without Littlewood. I'm Alex Dean, standing in for Mark Littlewood, and I have truly committed myself uh, to the role uh, this evening. In the run-up to tonight's show, I've uh, opened three new online gambling accounts. I've reread my Hayek cover to cover. I've committed my soul to Southampton Football Club. I even found myself talking a bit like this for a while, but quite annoying uh, that was too. Uh, I truly am Mark's stunt double for this evening. And joining me on uh, the wild ride of Live Without Littlewood, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Victoria Hewson from the IEA, who's going to be talking to us about tax and regulation and why is a Conservative government experiencing quite such high levels of taxation uh, in our country. We'll be joined by Mark Johnson from Big Brother Watch, an organisation that has always been led by people of phenomenal, even distracting attractiveness, uh, who's going to be talking to us about the online safety bill. And I'm going to be joined by the homegrown Chris Snowden, very own IEA, David Beckham from the Academy, all the way through man and boy IEA uh, talent, who's going to be talking to us about maybe on lifestyle economics, the government's not got it all wrong. We'll be listening to that with some interest. But first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by Alice Denby, Deputy Editor at CapEx. Hi. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm disappointed I didn't get an introduction about my attractiveness. Well, I know. It's, it was slightly self-serving because I used to run Big Brother Watch. Uh, so um, I admit it. Um, last week, rail strikes in the United Kingdom. Uh, the team here at the IA have assembled me some of the potential threatened strikes in our future. Royal Mail, the doctors, British Airways uh, holding up the airports, firefighters. Where are we and what's going on with this kind of public sector and private sector strike threats? I think you know, it's obviously we're uh, at a period of inflation. It's understandable that public sector workers want to see their pay keep pace with the actual cost of living. But the question really for me is, is this reasonable at a time when people in the private sector are not getting 7, 10, 30% pay rises apparently the GPs are asking for? And I think I take the same line as the, the Justice Lord Burnett, who said that barristers who went on strike at a time when the court is having these huge backlogs of rape cases, uh, murders, child abuse, that any barrister who goes on strike to hold that up should be referred for professional misconduct. And I think the same should be said of other public sector workers, doctors, uh, GPs who, who want to go on strike at this, at this moment. So it's, I declare an interest because I'm a recovering barrister. I think the profession would say that many junior barristers in the criminal bar are working for less than minimum wage, and not just a bit, but habitually and year after year. Any sympathy? Absolutely. I have sympathy with everyone who's experiencing a massive squeeze on their living standards. We're all going through it. Um, but what I do think is, frankly, unprofessional. When you're in a job where you've taken professional oaths, you owe a duty to your clients, and society holds you in a particularly high regard and because of the kind of status that you've accorded, to go on strike is just completely irresponsible. Now, I suppose the worst strike we could contemplate would be one in the medical sphere, where people already facing this incredible backlog on operations might find themselves having to wait even longer for something. I mean, it must be very frightening if you've already had to have this, this wait and you're in the NHS's enormous backlog, and to be told the doctor might be on strike and be even further. So even the threat of a strike might disturb people. But I think I know what the answer is. But your view on a medical strike? Absolutely unconscionable uh, and a disgrace to the profession if it happens. Doctors who, you know... People have had waited long enough during the pandemic. They've suffered enough, and doctors, you know, it's terrible for all of us, but they have actually had pretty good pay rises. They've got incredible job security, much better than many other people. Oh. And they have a duty, I mean, above everyone else in society, I think, to their patients. And what about... Um public sector pensions because the answer used to be that if you were in the public sector you had lower wages but your pension was better uh, and it sort of balanced out now it seems they've got just as good pensions 
just as good wages or better than the private sector and as you say even more job security so do you think just taking the public sector more broadly is there any of those guys who've been arguing that they've lost so much over RPI over recent years that take the postal workers and so forth people who are kind of pretty lowly paid uh, and say they deserve a, a pay rise your position is especially at this time get on with it I mean, I think there's uh, there's one argument about whether people deserve a pay rise. That's different to the argument about whether it's justifiable to go on strike to demand one. So do you? So let's figure that out. It, do you think that some of this is bluff, bluster, taking a position to try to make people think they might go out? Uh, I think uh, some of it is bluff and bluster. Some of it is essentially fairly militant trade unions on a political mission, and some of it is you know f it's the trade union's job to stand up for their members, isn't it? But. Frankly, trade union membership is in a long-term decline. It went, it's been going up a bit, but the long-term trend is downwards. And private sector workers, are, as I say, are not experienced, are not having these kind of pay rises. Do you think membership is going up because they're being more militant? Almost certainly. Yeah. And because people's wages are, are suffering and they see, you know, an opportunity to get a better deal. So let's take the freedom-minded perspective on the question. Let's take so that's been the kind of thinking about it as consumers of these services. What about the libertarian perspective? And you know, aren't these people entitled to withdraw their labour? Nobody's entitled to force you to work. Sure, they're entitled to go on strike. But do we, as a society, have to say, have to stand up for that and say, you know, that's fair enough and that's a responsible thing to do? So the ultimate thing, though, is if you're going to call their bluff, you've got to be willing to sack them. Right? And you've got to be willing to say, I'm going to replace you. It's what Ronald Reagan did with the air traffic controllers. Pretty hard to do with doctors, I would have thought. Yes, very hard to do, especially when we've got an enormous number of vacancies. Um, I think there are other things that the government should do. For example, it's absolutely ludicrous that we've got a cap on the number of medical school places when we have such an enormous need for doctors. Uh, and obviously there's always the kind of immigration lever that we can pull. But you're right, the government's in a bind because it can't just sack doctors. And even if you did have a freer market in healthcare education, the nature of qualification is such it would take years for them to come into the system, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a real difficulty. But we have seen in the past that the government can stand firm, for example, with the junior doctors' strike. Uh, if you do take a firm stance, eventually, you know, you, you can win. You don't have to just fold. And I think for a Conservative government, the issue is always, well, a Labour government is always going to be in a better position than you to make deals with a trade union, frankly, because they're going to be more willing to just concede. So politically, as well as economically, the Conservatives always have a, 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 always have a, a kind of responsibility to kind of stand firm in these kind of debates, I think. Traditionally, people have, all, you know, in this country, we love the NHS. It's almost like a national religion. We, you know, not long ago, we were on our doorsteps clapping as a country for the NHS during coronavirus. Do you think that the healthcare profession might have misjudged the mood on this a little bit? I would hope so. I mean, I'm sure people in this room and watching this don't uh, don't need to. Uh have too many lessons about the, the nature of the kind of national religion of the NHS and how damaging that is policy-wise. Um, and I would hope that, uh, especially if people start to experience backlogs upon backlogs, delays upon delays to their healthcare, you know, everyone in this, you can't get an appointment with a GP mm. at the moment. Um, eventually, something's going to have to break, right? And we're going to have to stop just regarding everyone who decides to work for the NHS as a saint. Um, I think one of the issues that you've put your finger on is the um, situation in this country where there's almost no choice to go somewhere else. If mm. you, so unless you're a wealthy person, you're not in a position to take something uh, other than the NHS's provision for healthcare. But there is competition in some other markets. And if people go, don't you think, I mean, when we have strikes in London and, and the black cabbies try and hold up um, try and hold up the, uh, the streets uh, to demand better conditions for themselves. In the end, they encourage people to use other services. Mm -hmm. I think over time, strikes are counterproductive? Absolutely. Um, and I also think that there's an element of inevitability about it. So if you look at the railways, for example, they're going to have to modernise. They're going to make themselves obsolete in the end anyway, and strikes merely advance the kind of natural progression. Um, I do think that during the pandemic, many parents who could afford it have switched, for example, to private education, noticing how much better the provision is there. Um, and yes, I do think ultimately these are counterproductive. And I think if you want to have the sort of, as I, as I said before, the kind of social status and the cachet and the respect that society calls professional people whose services we rely on, then you have to act in a professional way. You've got a higher duty.
Alice, robust start as we expected from CapEx. Stay with us, please, as we're joined by the IEA's Head of Regulatory Affairs, Victoria Hewson. Victoria, hi, thanks for coming on. Um, we're going to talk inflation, but first of all, as we were discussing strikes, your views? Um, I agree that for key public sector workers it's unconscionable to go on strike. What I think is also unconscionable is the way that a Conservative government that's been in power, uh, so in, whether in coalition or, or with an outright majority, uh, for what are we up to now, 12 years, uh, hasn't done anything to reform the laws um, around strikes and trade union activity as well as all of the working practices that rather politically incorrectly get called Spanish practices that have come to light uh, in connection with, with, the, with um, the railway workers as well. So when you're on a go slow, so as not to, you know, more than my job's worth, I'm going to take 12 minutes to walk to the restroom before lunch starts, or at least claim and I do. Yes, and you know, restricting the ability of teams to work in different locations. I was astonished to find that the guys who work on the Euston line can't go over and help on the King's Cross line um, if there's an issue. Even if they're not doing anything and even if it's seriously going to hold up the transport system. But to be honest, I think, again, as Alice alluded to, I think it's ultimately counterproductive for the, the workers in the railways. The, the sort of outworking of the coronavirus uh, pandemic policies and, and, the, and the general shutdown led to a collapse in passenger numbers using the railways that hasn't recovered to anywhere like its pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, query whether the, the the now rather prevalent popularity of hybrid working means that are they ever going to recover to those same levels? Is our current uh, railway network sustainable as it is at present? And you know, are the workers who are um, campaigning against and holding back the kinds of modernizations and efficiencies that might give the railways a fighting chance of um, being a useful uh, transport network into you know, into the into the coming decades, I'm afraid by resisting all of that kind of thing, uh, they might just be pricing themselves out of sustainable jobs. Well, of course, I note that the uh, railways took billions of public money to keep them uh, going, and this might seem to some people a strange time to ask for a pay rise. But anyway, I want to talk to you about inflation. Uh, look at where we are now. Not just food and energy costs that have gone up, all other goods risen by average 8% over the past two years. What's the IEA's perspective on what should be happening here, and can we get out of a spiral where inflation's going up, goods cost more, people want bigger pay rises, and so forth? Well, the IEA... Uh, our um, writers have been rather smug about this because um, our uh, experts like Tim Congdon have been writing, sounding the alarm about the upcoming uh, threat of inflation for a couple of years now. Now, arguably, people um, who sort of favour sound money and uh, disfavour loose monetary policy um, could, could have easily seen this coming. Um, by you know the, the, the influx of money into the economy that hasn't been backed by productivity, uh, you know too much money chasing too few goods and services. I think and nobody, debt's very cheap. And and cheap debt, you know the the legacy of um, quantitative easing in 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 economies not not just ours of course. Um, and I think to be fair, you know the the, the vast stimulus packages in the United States, multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages does have an effect on the global economy as well. That all seeps in the war in Ukraine, you know, hitting energy prices and supply chains. China's continued lockdowns causing all of that um, blockages in, in supply chains and, and cargo getting out of Shanghai, all of those things. Um, but I don't think, I don't think we can let our government off the hook and let the Chancellor off the hook here by just allowing, and the Bank of England mm. in, in particular, by just allowing them to throw their hands in the air and say, oh, global forces, what could we do? Um, you know, I think they have to take some responsibility here because they should have seen this coming and they should have been um, acting more sensibly sooner. Alice, uh, Victoria set the stage very well for why we are where we are. What's your CapEx, CPS position on what we should do now? Is it time for tax cuts? Is it time for government to borrow more? Is it something else? I think the CPS position is that we should look at every single thing on 
in the legislative books and see is it costing consumers money? Cut spending. Cut spending, cut taxes. I think we think it's absolutely the wrong time for a national insurance rise. It's absolutely the wrong time for a corporation tax hike, unpopular as that might be. The best way to help people with the cost of living is to let them keep more of their own money in their own pockets. Um, and the government just doesn't seem to be up for it. And supply-side reforms to enable that productivity to catch up with the money supply, um, which unfortunately, in many respects, uh, the government is going backwards on that. And what would your supply-side reforms be? Well, um, for a start, um, we, we're going to get onto the online safety bill in yeah. a moment. That's not just a threat to freedom of speech, but it's also going to be um, very costly for businesses to comply with and uh -huh. will um, ultimately deter uh, startups and entrepreneurs from getting involved in those kinds of digital markets. Uh, we've seen a rather weak and feeble proposal for reforming data protection law, which we know uh, the GDPR has had extremely negative effects on innovation and competition in those really vital digital markets and research. It's been greatly beneficial for the digital giants who have deep pockets to pay for all of this uh, compliance costs and already have uh, strong market positions. Unfortunately, the government has really ducked out of doing a proper end-to-end uh, -end review of those kinds of regulations. Financial services review of uh, the future financial framework, I think it's called, is you know, plodding along very slowly, but the kinds of reforms that businesses were looking for to things like Solvency 2 to inject capital into the productive sectors of the economy is happening at an absolute snail's pace. And uh, Alice, you going to say? Yeah, so one more supply-side reform that I can never stop talking enough about is childcare costs. Um, so I'm at the very sharpest end of this. I've got a child under three, so I get no help at all from the government. And she's at nursery four days a week, and it costs 70% of my income. Good um, Basically, it means that my... After tax. After, yeah, I mean, so basically it means my husband sort of subsidises capex to employ me, which doesn't feel like a very feminist position to be in. Um, so absolutely, the government's talked about reforming the ratios to uh, adults to children. It should That's allowing more children per adult child mind or child care. Yeah, absolutely. This is only to bring it into line with, say, Scotland and other European countries. So safety arguments, I don't think, fly on that at all. And then there's also the uh, Early Years Foundation framework so it's a curriculum for two-year-olds. It's just bureaucracy really. It's just bureaucracy. As things like, you know, there's a set text that's the very hungry caterpillar. It's laughable. Um, and and it, it's, it's just a form-filling exercise right. for, for preschool teachers. So that is a supply pride reform that we cannot And Dara, can I just quickly yeah. please in planning reform um, to really get um, more workers and into the places that are productive and to allow more families to actually buy their own to home. To own their own home, which you would think would be in the Conservative Party's interest, because when you divide up the electorate in all manner of ways, one of the clearest for them is homeowners are more likely to vote Tory. Exactly. So even if you were just thinking about it from a naked, self-interested yes. perspective. You've, you've, all, you've both set out some very interesting points about supply-side reforms, regulatory activity. It seems to me, and I welcome both your views, that a lot of these regulations are welcomed by the industry because they act as a barrier to entry. They act as something that stymies competition and prevents newcomers coming in with new ideas, cheaper products, uh, threaten the market position of, of the big incumbents. Is it, Alice first, that fair? Yeah. <laughs> Victoria? I think that's very common. I think a, a very common sort of uh, path through this kind of thing is that often the industry might oppose a particular regulation. The, the, the great example of this was the REACH regulation for, for chemicals, which was tremendously costly and complex to implement, literally cost tens of billions to the industry to implement it. So the industry bodies were pretty resistant about it 10, 20 years ago when it was uh, in development and, and being passed in law in, in the EU. But then once they've spent those billions, it's then in their interest. That's a sunk cost. They're not going to get right. that back. And it then becomes a barrier to entry to challenges and uh, overseas competitors. So now the industry is very devoted <laughs> to, to, to the reach regulation. I think sorry, sometimes you get consumer groups as well. Sorry, going back to childcare, which sure. there's a lot of kind of consumer campaign groups that also oppose loosening regulations because they make claims about safety and 
uh, quality of childcare, but what, what they don't seem to recognise is that it's so expensive that many people just can't afford anything at it. all. Um, so yeah, I think there's lots of barriers uh, in the way to the kind of reforms we want to mm. see. Well, if uh, you're watching, we've 20 minutes in, and the reason that you're still watching is it's very good. So like, <laughs> comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and please check out and support our digital content through our Patreon account. And we're now going to be joined by Mark Johnson from Big Brother Watch. Well, you come from a fine organisation. Thank, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Unsafe bill? Is it a threat to free speech? Is it a threat to privacy online? Give us the 101. Um, I think so. When you go through the rundown of, of what's in there, I mean, uh, from, the, from the very top you have um, the government deputising social media companies to act as online speech police. Um, you have a new criminal offence which criminalises seriously distressing um, speech. Um, you have the government um, delegating a category of free speech as harmful, um, or categories of free speech as harmful, and then you have all sorts of other mechanisms, um, private messaging, scanning, um, ID for internet access and so on. The list goes on, so it's certainly not a good bill for civil liberties at all. Um, Victoria, uh, it seems to me that something being seriously distressing is intangible. And this discussion that we've been having, for example, someone who are completely opposed to supply-side reform might claim to have been seriously distressed <laughs> by the views that you two have just expressed. <laughs> uh, what's your position? Well, the, the new criminal offences um, are particularly worrying. Now, they do replace the existing communications offence, which are pretty terrible and everyone was very delighted when reform and repeal of the communications offences under the old section 127 of the Communications Act was up for grabs but unfortunately it looks like it's going to be replaced with something that's in many ways worse. Um, it's tied to the subjective experience of harm of the recipient or likely recipient if the sender intended to cause psychological harm to this likely audience. There's also the um, Mark will keep me right on this, the um, deliberately sending false information, so it's essentially a misinformation speech crime is being introduced. And why this is particularly damaging in this bill is that those social media companies will have a duty to remove material that they reasonably believe, reasonably believe meets those, uh, the thresholds for those offences without any due process, without a course investigation, without a judge without particularly applying the normal protections and safeguards we'd expect for the prosecution of those offences in the real world. If in doubt, they will have to delete that kind of content because otherwise they face fines and sanctions uh, in the tens of millions of, of pounds, potentially. Well, Mark, there's a lot there I know that you and Big Brother Watch would agree with. The last time this government had a go at this, I confronted um, Michael Gove on libertarian points, and he said, I remember it because it was a, a good line, if a, a facile one, I used to be a libertarian and then I had children. <laughs> Right? And, and the, the a very patronising notion that yeah. if you have, you have children, you no longer have beliefs that are freedom-minded. But the, the other side of this debate would say, wouldn't it, yeah, there's a lot of unpleasantness out there. People have a responsibility to look after and safeguard people. Even the free speech union, I note, accepts uh, big tech should do more to protect children online. Is there a different version of this bill you might support? I think, I think nobody disputes that what has to be done is the rule of law has to be upheld online and that has to be the starting point for, you know, for any attempt to, to keep people safe or make people safer online. Where, where this bill obviously goes even further than that is it talks about harm to adults as well and, and things that could be legal but harmful to adults. Um, and, and in doing so, it gives the Secretary of State an enormous amount of power to, to decide what that could be and then to push that onto the platforms and say, deal with it in, in a way that really will pressure them into censoring all kinds of material, as I said, that you, know, you or I could, could say or talk about in the street. So are we moving to a situation where the minister, happens to be Nadine Dorries at the moment, but you know, it could be any incumbent in the future, and you've got to imagine um, governments changing and Absolutely. different people occupying that role, yeah. uh, are we saying that that one minister would be able, in the end, to censor the population? In effect, yeah, what, what the minister has to do is, or, or, or will be able to do, um, is, is to designate whichever category uh, of speech or whichever type of speech that they deem to be subjectively harmful, that there is no safeguard around what that could be. There's a cyclical definition in the bill that says uh, harm is, is something that could be harmful to adults or something that could be physically or psychologically harmful to adults. Yeah, that's tautological, uh, isn't it? Uh, and exactly. And, and so, and, and so what, what, what could happen in effect is they could, they could, really, they could really choose anything. 
in effect. Um, and then they, they pu push this towards the platforms, and then the platforms have to, to, to deal with it um, you know, in their terms of use, which have to then be um, uh, upheld consistently. What this will do is it could create political censorship because if you think about if you think about for example you know going back to the to the to the covid uh, to the pandemic and the lockdowns um, big tech did get more censorious we saw a, a kind of narrowing uh, of 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 the permissibility of speech on some of the main platforms that we all use um, if there is a, a kind of moral panic about um, about an area for example during the pandemic we had back and forths on mask wearing if the government decided that to say that masks are effective, ineffective, you know, take your pick, whatever, because we went in various different directions, uh, then they could then push that onto the platforms and then say, actually, we don't like this, this is harmful speech and you've got to deal with it. Um, Alice, I know it's not necessarily a core focus for you, but you're going to have a view. What's uh, the CPS position on this one? Yeah, I'm very worried about the impact it's going to have on free speech. And, and, and you guys can correct me on this, but I, I thought one of the worrying aspects of it was that it determines a lot of, it turns a lot of small businesses, you know, if you're just a company that has maybe a chat forum on your website, into a publisher. And so, you know, obviously big tech is going to be much better place to deal with this than perhaps a small community forum or, or, or indeed a kind of a, an innovator that's going to shake up the market. And I thought that was a really... A really worrying aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I think from 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 your perspective, um, one of the big concerns is the the kind of regulatory cost. But there's actually a freedom of expression consideration there, which is that you know companies abroad might take a look at this and think, oh, we don't want to play ball with that. Oh, um, it's interesting. And blocks the UK and, and, mm. and not allow their services to, to to be used in the UK. So you have a freedom of expression um, element there, where people in the UK can't access um, sites and services abroad either. Unless you get a VPN. Look out for the uptick <laughs> in uh, VPN. So as so often you think actually the regulatory environment would just apply to those who choose to conform to it and there'll be other people going around to a black market and those clever enough to avoid the regulations would avoid them. Which, let's be honest, is going to include most young people, teenagers who will understand far better than their parents potentially how to, uh, how to get access to a VPN um, and, and, and use it in that way. Um, and so, but, but yes, the, the impact assessment accompanying the bill estimates 25,000 platforms will be in scope. Um, but some business organisations think that that's a massive underestimate. Yes. The government estimates the cost of compliance of the bill is going to be, in the first 10 years, £2.5 billion, pounds, which again is a deluded underestimate because it includes, for example, an assumption that you'll be able to obtain legal advice at a cost of about £30 an hour. Uh, which Good luck is a, finding a lawyer Which is a that. former specialist in that right. area is, is completely laughable. So there's, there's a lot of dodgy stuff in the impact assessment and the cost-benefit analysis, quite apart from the qualitative questions about freedom of speech. And Mark, before we lose you, I wanted to just try one other area that is plainly impacted on by this bill. Um, anonymity online, um, and that which comes with anonymity and ability to express yourself freely. Do you believe there's a right to be anonymous online? Uh, and whether or not there is a right to be anonymous online, would this bill end the ability to be anonymous online? I think there's a risk that this bill will, will really damage the ability to be, to be anonymous on, uh, online. And I think it is an important thing that we are able to be anonymous if we choose to be. And there are loads of people um, in other jurisdictions who rely on that for their safety and security. There are also people in this country um, that, that, that don't want to, to have their, their face to their words, and that's okay too, and it's a freedom of expression issue as much as it is a, a privacy issue. Well, let's talk brass tacks. You have very different organisations, you have different perspectives, but one thing that unites you is you're all good Westminster watchers. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, do you think the bill is a done deal, Alice? Oh, um... I think it's still a way to go. It faces a lot of opposition. Uh, it's got, you know. Is it the Lords you think that might come to the rescue, Mark? I mean, I think I think there is certainly disquiet building on the Conservative benches, as you as you would probably expect. You've had you know people like David Davis, Lord Frost has been really outspoken recently, um, Steve Baker. So there is lots of opposition. It's growing. Um, whether the bill is a done deal or not, I'm not sure. But there's certainly a lot we can do to, to take out some of the most damaging bits. For sure. Victoria, you're I'm a good not, Tory not, whisperer. <laughs> what do you I'm not as optimistic as that. Unfortunately, <laughs> the bill, certainly in the Commons, has very broad cross-party support. If anything. Uh, Labour members in particular don't think it goes far enough because they want it to be able to be used to crack down quite explicitly on disinformation, climate change denial, incels. And, and so I think, if anything, it might even get worse as it progresses through Parliament. There is some hope that the, the Lords will bring a 
cooler heads and legal expertise to bear on it. But I, I fear that the bill is going to progress, um, even actually whatever happens you know, with the, if there's a general election or whatever, I suspect a future Labour government or whatever form of coalition is going to be even more committed to it. Well, it was Labour that gave us 28-day detention, control orders. They're hardly the party of liberty. Mark, without committing you to anything, mm -hmm. big, <laughs> observers will note that Big Brother Watch is a great success with legal interventions. Ultimately, I mean, this must be such a core issue for you guys. What, what are the plans? It's something that we'll look at um, in time. At the moment, the, the battle is very much focused on the parliamentary, the parliamentary fight. And as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not resigned to it being over yet. Um, I, I do think that, um, that there is enough concern in quarters that we can pressure the government, maybe if not you know, by an outright rebellion, because as you said, you know, Labour support might not be there. Mm. Um, but I do think that there are ways in which we can, that we can fight some of the worst parts. And as you say, we always have our eye on um, you know, strategic litigation further down the line. It may just be me channeling my inner Littlewood. Uh, <laughs> and indeed, in one view, hard to believe that he was a member of this party and given where it is now. But where are the Lib Dems? I mean, isn't, shouldn't this be a core issue for the Liberal Democrats? I actually can't remember anything that any Liberal Democrat has said on the matter. Which is Mark, you, you watch this one closely. Are they on side? <laughs> they have been quite quiet so far. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that on some of the on some of the worst parts, they they may come to the fore on the legal but harmful speech. I, I really do hope they oppose, um, and we will find out very soon because report stage is coming up in the House of Commons probably before the recess. Well, if you're a Liberal Democrat and you're watching this, contact your MP if you're in the unlikely circumstances of having a Liberal Democrat <laughs> MP, and let them know that you care about them not saying anything on this subject. Um, Alice, if we just broaden it from the online harms bill to think about government intervention more generally. This seems to me to be a high-tempo government mm. uh, in terms of its regulatory intervention into as all aspects of, uh, of life. Uh, some people would be surprised, I think, by the, uh, given it's a Conservative Party uh, doing that. What's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, this is a sort of totally schizophrenic government, and there's a kind of electoral reasons for that, because it has kind of opposing interests. It's got its heartlands in the south, uh, traditional Tory values, what have you, and then a completely new uh, set of interests in the Red Wall. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see, um, on the one hand, Rishi Sunak saying that he's this tax-cutter conservative, while at the same time presiding over the highest tax burden since the days of Attlee. Um, and, and I think perhaps that's why... I, I kind of think that the whole levelling-up agenda plays into this, because on the one hand, it's meant to be about a sort of protectionist view of kind of spreading wealth away from London. Uh, and, but then on the other hand, you can only get the wealth to do that by being kind of embracing the opportunities of Brexit to be much more free trading and open. So I think the government just has not resolved these internal tensions that it has partly as a consequence of the manner in which it won the election and I think partly as a consequence of the personalities involved. You know, Prime Minister who we know sort of some describe as a tro shopping trolley, some say he sort of just agrees with whoever he last spoke to, but uh, uh, certainly a man who do, we don't uh, consider necessarily as a guiding principle to his style of politics. Victoria, high interventionist Toryism? It, it's certainly that. I think there's, I, uh, as I've been describing, is a lack of an organising principle. Because even on, for example, even on the issue of, uh, of free speech, on the one hand, the same government is legislating to protect free speech in universities, and yet risking censorship of the exact same kinds of speech if it's uttered on a on a digital platform or in a WhatsApp message. So that's you know c completely arbitrary ad hoc yeah. behaviour. Mark, that must be quite weird for you as a free speech warrior. <laughs> the government is fighting its best to ensure free speech in universities, but if you stick the speech online, you open yourself up to liability. I, th I think there was a government minister asked about you know a particularly difficult area, which you're often you know presented with when you're talking about free speech, and they almost did say. You know, okay, university is not okay online, and it you know is mind-boggling. Um, but it is a government that talks a very good game on free speech. Um, but you can look at you can look in other areas as well as you know as to as to where they're really shutting down free expression. I mean, we've had a lot of concerns about the the, the PCSC, the, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Now Act, and the the restrictions around protests which cause too much noise. And you can you know look at that from a freedom of expression perspective. Literally, but surely even Big Brother Watch must be relieved to see the back of uh, <laughs> Steve Brain. Steve no, Brain. I'm, I'm, no. 
you're, you're, you're that committed, you're die hard. It's just sweet Steve Bray. Uh, Steve Bray is, is very annoying, but I don't think uh, you know annoying uh, being annoying should uh, should face you know well, criminal sanctions. Bear speaks a true liberal in the actual meaning of the word liberal. Great note to lose you on. Thanks for coming up and talking to Thank us very much. about that. And we're going to be joined now by Chris Snowden. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we will first of all point out, I know how uh, many of our viewers were expecting you to be Patrick Christie's. Patrick Christie's has done something very silly. He was in a tractor race, uh, or lawnmower race, forgive me, and fell off it and did himself an injury. As the injury isn't too bad, we gather, uh, it's all right to laugh at him. Uh, and I therefore look forward to appending the footage from that accident uh, to the show notes uh, when they go out. Um, Chris, uh, let's think about some of the topics we've been discussing uh, with the panel tonight. First of all, general position on strikes, disorder, where we are as a country, a long hot summer of discontent. Um, I'll keep talking whilst you get a microphone pinned to yourself. Um, I wonder what your perspective is, not just because you're here at the IEA, but also because you know, the lifestyle unit sees so much that is being intruded upon in some of this stuff, whether it be alcohol, gambling, um, smoking, so forth. You must uh, see lots of reasons for people to be, uh, to be cross, but it seems they're actually cross about uh, their wages. Yeah, uh, rightly so. I mean, in a way, I'm sanguine about it because I had my crisis two years ago when I saw all this coming, around about May, June 2020, and I'm watching it unfold. And it's a little bit worse than I expected because of the, the war in Ukraine made, making things worse. But, you know, you've got to pay the fiddler at some point. And the way that the government has decided to pay for COVID is through inflation, which is it has all the effects of a tax, um, but worse, in fact, I would say. What do I think about the strikes? Um, I can totally understand why people are striking. I can totally understand why people don't want to see their living standards fall. But you know, what do you do when you have inflation at 10%? There isn't any easy answer to it. There isn't any easy solution to it. Well, either you drive the country into recession, which will work, and that's generally been the way that these problems have been dealt with, but that leads to a fall in living standards. You jack up interest rates, which has obviously massive negative effects in various ways and also will probably lead to a recession. Um, or you kind of freeze wages and people in the private sector certainly won't be getting 10, 11% pay rises. Um, it would be nice, obviously, if we all could get 10, 11% pay rises in theory in the short term, but then what happens next year? We're just back in the same situation again. Your fellow panellists have taken uh, the position that there are a couple of professions, at least, in which people effectively shouldn't be allowed to strike. That, that withdrawal of your labour, one example was in the law courts uh, being ground to a halt, another was in the medical profession and people not being able to have an operation. I'm going to have one last go to see if there is a libertarian perspective on withdrawal of labour from the IEA. What's your view? Um, I would limit that to the army and the police myself. So two more? Okay, there we go. No, no, I would limit it. I would no, limit I it to I I two, think, two I, think, I think doctors should be allowed to strike. What was the other one? Uh, the, um, uh, the courts. Yeah, they should be absolutely allowed to strike. Well, yeah, all right, um, so we've got a, diff a different perspective. Uh, just, I should allow you the right <laughs> reply, actually. Alice first. Um, well, I mean, I would just say that, that Lord Burnett is very senior judge has disagreed. He says it's unprofessional for barristers to go on strike and they should be referred for misconduct proceedings. I've never I'll heard of him. To, I don't care what he thinks. No point trying to appeal to authority. <laughs> I, I, I have heard of him and I don't care what he thinks either. Um, so I, I definitely think, of course, you're free to withdraw your labour. That's, that's clear. People aren't in indentured uh, servitude. But um, the government or whoever the employer or service pro provider is should also be free to uh, hire alternative uh, labour, temporary supply contractors, whatever it is. Uh, so of course you can you can you can walk away and withdraw your labour, but you should expect your employer to try and mitigate that, and potentially for your job not to be there when you decide to return. I mean, I think there's a better case with, with barristers and, and judges than there is with, with doctors, because the police, the army and barristers all have to work for the state. I think even a fairly extreme libertarian would agree with that. Doctors shouldn't be working for the state at all. After doctors should be negotiating with their own you know, whatever it is, GP surgery, hospital, with their own employer, they shouldn't be working, the NHS shouldn't exist, and they shouldn't have to be negotiating with it, and we'd be in a much better system. If, but if surely there's a market it. solution to paying criminal barristers. Alex, you probably have better ideas on this, but the, well, it seems to me the problem here is the, the inefficiencies in our legal aid system. 
um, which means that barristers de facto are working for the state, even though in fact really they're working for their clients, it's just the state is paying for them. They're self-employed, but whether they're prosecuting or defending, in the end, I don't think any of us would want someone, if they were poor enough, not to be able to be represented. And if that's the case, then the state's going to have to provide some form of de minimis uh, mm. provision, and that de, min de minimis provision is legal aid. So Chris, in the end, I think, has got a point. But uh, um, Alice, uh, your thoughts on the examples that Chris gave, because you know, he's probably right, isn't he, that the army shouldn't be allowed to withdraw their labour, nor should the police. So that we've got four at least uh, workforces now that uh, you'd compel uh, to do their work. Yeah, I absolutely resent pretty much anyone going on strike. But, um, <laughs> no, but, uh, and, and I couldn't agree with Chris, well, we shouldn't have an NHS. <laughs> I mean, that would solve many of our problems. Change it's good that we can agree on the sensible <laughs> middle ground. So, yes, of course. Um, change of topic. What a fortnight it's been in Westminster. I've got three inveterate Westminster watchers with me. It would be foolish not to ask you your perspectives on the state of, of the parties, and especially government, which has just lost two by-elections. You know, why don't I start with Victoria and work down this way. Victoria, where are we in political uh, life? Where are we in party politics? Well, the, um, the by-elections were obviously um, widely predicted as, as being a, a... Well, although they've been spam, haven't they? Some people are saying, oh, it's not actually as bad as it looks because some complicated methodology shows that it's actually all fine. But I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, from my perspective, actually, from the policy areas that I'm interested in, with the, the interesting uh, knock-on effect that all this is having with the Prime Minister's insecurity in his position is that he is being driven by certain um, interest groups within Parliament to pursue their priorities, uh, which the one I'm particularly interested in and following is the Northern Ireland Protocol, where, um, you know, does the, does the Prime Minister's insecurity mean that he's very much going to be once again beholden to the ERG and the DUP in, in pursuing um, the, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which um, I would welcome. I think the, the bill is, um, is positive and needed. Uh, and so I, I sort of almost hope the Prime Minister clings on for long enough to see that through. Um, so that's, that's one uh, interesting sort of policy impact of, of the current Westminster arithmetic. Chris, your perspective on the state of things? Oh, dire, obviously. Uh, fa fairly dire for the uh, Conservative Party. You know, I honestly don't know. You know, the mid midterm by-elections, obviously, you expect the government to lose. And in a way, it's a miracle that anybody votes for the government, particularly in Wakefield, right? I mean, that, what an absolute... Uh, the, the, it never been Tory for like 87 years or something like that. Yeah. The previous MP had just been convicted for being a pedo. No, he's not, well, a sexual assault on a child. That's the same thing. No, so it, it's not, it's not, forgive me, it's not the same thing, because it, was it, it wasn't the definition of a child, it was someone over 13, so I think it was on a young person. It's not a paedophile, but anyway. Okay, he was convicted of having sex with a child. It wasn't sex either. Uh, right. I'm just thinking, I'm mindful of the IA's liability. I'm not, I'm not defending the guy. Yeah, I'm not defending right. the guy, I'm thinking about the IA's okay, liability. Is it sexual assault on a, yeah. on a minor. Se sexual assault on a minor, yeah. Um, it's not an attractive position. No, it's not. Um, you should be a, you should be a bit representing him as a barrister. The, uh, the, the Tory candidates was asked, uh, I, I blush to say it as a member of the Tory party, was asked, your predecessor is in prison, why should people vote for you? And his response was, well, um, Harold Shipman went to prison, but people still trust GPs. <laughs> okay. Slightly better than Harold Shipman, vote for us. Indeed, and he didn't do too well, did he? So both of these people lost the by-election. I don't know how, to much, how much to read into it. And the reason I don't is because I genuinely don't care about Partygate. And I find it really hard to believe that people do. And I find it really hard to believe that certainly in two years' time they will. But I could well be wrong. My finger is not always on the pulse of the nation by any means. I just, I just don't know. I, I don't know if they have a plausible candidate to, to replace Boris Johnson. He is a guy who tends to bounce back. But, you know, I'm reading so much stuff saying that he can't and that, you know, on the doorstep he's completely finished. So, I don't know. I, I think the Tory party will probably give him another you know, 11 months or so by which time they'll know. 
But the state of the country alone, in terms of inflation, strikes and all that, is enough to put any party way down in the polls. And he's not that far down in the polls. No. You know, single figures, we're talking. Alice, um, you are going to leave us soon, I know. So, parting shots, positions on party politics? Well, I, I do think Partygate matters a lot to people because people really remember what they were doing during the pandemic, what they suffered, what they gave up. But I think there are two things that play in the Prime Minister's favour here. One, that, that he's kind of already taken the hit from that. And two, that a lot of people think that Keir Starmer was doing it as well, that they're all as bad as each other. Um, so that kind of, in some ways, helps Boris Johnson. I think one of the intriguing features of our politics at the moment is that the sort of most popular person for Prime Minister at the moment is don't know. Um, and I, I mean, I think a lot of Tories should be looking at that polling and think, would we be better off with basically anyone except for Boris? People always talk about, oh, there's no alternative. Um, there's no obvious successor, but I, I think pollster James Johnson, who I spoke to recently, said they'd be better off with literally anyone. Um, so I think Tories should think about that. That's not a Centre for Policy Studies position. But no, I mean, once he's gone, you can't, you can't get him back. Once you just put some rando in there yeah. and you find out actually yeah. Boris Johnson's the most popular Tory <laughs> in the last 30 years, you can't suddenly go, oh, actually, can he come back? You can't suddenly, him. but people do occasionally uh, return in political life. But I, I take your point. Alice, has been a great guest. Thank you so much. Don't Thank forget you for your wine. Thank you for having me. I wait. Um, and as we uh, lose, Alice, we... <laughs> my guests shuffle up, we're going to be talking about the fundamentals. Is the government justified in the end by focusing on the fundamentals and saying they get the big calls right? You often hear this defence, don't you, of the government and of particularly the Prime Minister, that he may do X or Y or Z that you don't like, but in the end, look at, and you choose your things, Ukraine, if that's something that appeals to the audience, uh, coronavirus, if that's the one that appeals to the audience, and so forth. So he gets the big decisions right. Uh, Victoria, I think I might know what your, your view is, but what's your view on that? Well, I think on, in a lot of ways they've got those big decisions quite wrong. We've talked about economic policy. I, I can't really think of any economic policy decisions that I would say have been resoundingly right. I think Boris Johnson, and this is where Chris and I will probably diverge, I think Boris Johnson was right at first about the response to coronavirus and then was sort of sat on by the science and, uh, and locked us down. Ukraine, yes, potentially. I'm not really a foreign policy person, but I'm happy to be to, to assume that we are on the right side and doing the right things. So yes, I suppose there's that. Uh, culture wars, I would probably say actually the government is doing the right thing, putting the online safety bill to one side. But you know, the the the, the, the equalities minister Liz Truss um, is has sort of cracked down on some of the more wild uh, sort of gender ideology that is being propagated within government. And the Prime Minister himself seemed to um, take quite a sound position that um, women do not, in fact, generally or at all have penises, which is great news. So let's... let's uh, I will Julia, it was, what, it, was, it was once an uncontroversial position. It used to be, used to be a fairly uncontroversial position, but I, I would say on that, the Prime Minister has definitely got the big call right. Chris, on the big issues? I think the big call he got right was, um, you know, Freedom Day, nearly a year ago now. Now, the lockdown went on longer than I wanted, longer certainly than you wanted. Um, but we... We've had a year, basically, of, of freedom, apart from a bit of token mm. mask wearing in January or something like that. Um, and I think things would have been a lot worse with anybody else in charge. And would indeed were worse around Europe, and partly Just that's before because you, of the vaccine. Before you move on from that, you often, IEA watchers will know, you often get into the mix with the ultras who say that basically we should never have had any kinds of restrictions. Mm. And I wanted to give you an opportunity on the show to kind of set out your stall on, on measures that the government did that were right or not, and, and why some, they, they, there are conspiracy theorists on all sides of these things, and you puncture them magnificently online. So over to you. Well, I mean, COVID is quite a serious disease that kills 1% of the people, and would kill more than 1% of people if they didn't get hospital treatment. Uh, it does transmit from human to human, and if you reduce human to human transmission, then you will uh, get the disease to go into retreat. I think we were right to have the lockdown in March 2020, although I think it went on far too long. I think we were right to have the lockdown in January 2021, although it went, again, on for far too long. 
Um, and also, I think it's kind of inevitable because I, I think it's kind of almost stupid to, to argue about it. It was always going to happen. There was no way. Look around the world. You know, virtually every every government did um, have a lockdown when they saw their hospital system virtually collapsing uh, under this. So, you know, I I think I take a relatively moderate position on this. But I was to say, I'm very pleased that Boris Johnson did get rid of this stuff. We, along with uh, you know, uh, um, Javid. They, they're not keen on introducing it. There's panic again even now that cases are going up. There was panic a few months ago. They're not, they're not interested in bringing back restrictions. I personally think that's great, and I think they should get more credit for it than they do. That's a very um, fair point. Um, different subject, but it, because it's so topical and since the last show, the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol uh, bill just passed a second uh, reading. Now, for a government that's faced all these challenges, I note no rebellions. Um, Victoria? Yes, I think the... I was surprised how comfortably that passed. Um, I'm not sure whether Theresa May voted for it in the end. I thought it was, there was an interesting article today uh, by Arlene Foster wrote an article in the Daily Express, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, who had a really big go at Theresa May, who said basically that she had stood up and given a speech uh, opposing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And uh, Arlene Foster described that as Theresa May bringing her usual impotent sanctimoniousness uh, to bear. And if, um, if the Prime Minister's... Um, Basically, if you're on the other side of Theresa May on this, you're on the right side, was, was Arlene Foster's view, which is quite punchy. Um, and, you know, I, do, I get frustrated with the discourse on the Northern Ireland Protocol um, because everyone seems to say, oh, well, we need a negotiated solution. Well, OK, but the EU's not negotiating. What are you going to do? And, um, and the same people who a year or so ago were calling for full, rigorous implementation are now saying, oh, well, actually, we didn't really mean very full and very rigorous. We're quite happy with the grace periods that are currently in operation that's sort of mitigating the worst aspects because we haven't fully imposed full third country border controls, which is what the EU wants and is what full rigorous implementation would mean. Well, but all those people need to realise the, the grace periods are currently in breach of the agreement. So are you going mm -hmm. to be a purist about international law and get rid of the grace periods as well? Um, so I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and, dare I say, sanctimony going on here. Um, and, and ultimately, the British government has a duty to protect the interests of all its citizens, including uh, the economic interests and, indeed, the constitution uh, in, uh, in, of the United Kingdom of in Northern Ireland. And, Chris, uh, you've just been very fair to the government on the one hand. Uh, do you think the government on this has got the right approach? Green lanes and red lanes um, taking a, a new position in Westminster at odds with what they negotiated with Brussels? To be perfectly honest with you, Alex, I don't know anything about it. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm a specialist more than a journalist. This is why I don't get invited to go on Sky Papers. But there are lots of lifestyle so whatever, goods going into Northern Ireland. Whatever Victoria said, I agree with. <laughs> well, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, let's try something different with you then. About you asked me about the nanny status. That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, I, I was going to ask you whether the discussion that we had about the online harms bill uh, resonated with you. Big Brother Watch has a particular perspective, which doesn't matter, and I, I might happen to share it, but you might take a different point of view. After all, you've just, dis you've just displayed admirable moderation in your position about the government's position on coronavirus when some will have been pushing. Come on, IEA. Come on, Chris Snowden. Uh, be more on our side. Be more f allegedly freedom-minded or be more anti-vax. What's your position on the online harm stuff? I think it's terrible. I think the whole legislation is awful from start to finish, from, I, from what I understand of it. Um, you know, I, I would get rid of the restrictions on free speech in the you know, broader society, let alone online. I just don't, I don't think it should be a crime to be grossly offensive, for example. Does that mean that you would get rid of the hate crime legislation yes, that we have? Yes, absolutely. Hate crime legislation is appalling. I mean, it's thought crime legislation, really. A hate crime is a funny thing because well, it's not a funny thing, but it's a it's an odd thing because when it first started out, it was um, it was about things such as racist physical assaults. Yes, right. That was considered to be a hate crime. Or now it's to riots right, and violence. that kind of thing. Uh, whether an assault should be punished more harshly because it was racially motivated or motivated by homophobia, so I'm not quite sure it should be. It seems to me that if you kill somebody, you should, it doesn't really matter what the, um, what the motivation was. It seems that probably quite a bit of hate was involved regardless. Um, and, but now it's gone even beyond that, and it's just about speech. 
Um, yeah, it's it's sinister on Orwellian, and I absolutely despise it. And I don't like I don't like anything in the online arms bill. And I think we need to have a, a First Amendment basically in this country. What about the? Um, this is up your strata, I think. Uh, I, if you travel around. Um, Europe, especially now that we've left, it's, it's noticeable. The tax on a lot of consumables, uh, whether it be on um, alcohol or tobacco or fuel, is a great deal lower amongst some of our immediate neighbours uh, than it is here in the UK. The government might say it's in the wrong time to be um, cutting tax on, on things. And indeed, some of the some some people who urge more regulation say that you tax something more to discourage someone from using it. Um, what's your position on, on that, given the rise of the cost of living and what people are spending in, in tax with money they've already been taxed on? Well, yeah, we're in, like I said before, we're in a, a, an impossible situation and there's no easy way out of it. And yes, you can try cutting taxes. You can try just giving people money. The government is giving people money. It's giving everybody hundreds of pounds. That's already been forgotten about, by the way. You know, the, the population is totally ungrateful for all these things. It's cost, I think, about 30 or 40 billion pounds. It's already been forgotten about. Why isn't the government doing about the cost of living? 30, 40 billion pounds, you know, giving you a check. Um, yeah, so you can give people money or you can reduce taxes. The economic effects are basically the same. It just means the government has to borrow more money. And we've got high inflation largely because the government's been borrowing printed money um, to a whopping degree for, for two or three years. So I would obviously favour tax cuts rather than giving people money, partly because it stimulates growth, but also in the case of VAT and fuel duty, because you are literally bringing down prices if you reduce those taxes. Excise taxes, VAT, you reduce the tax, you reduce the prices, so you are directly tackling inflation. Victoria, this is a, a lot of that stuff is your core area of economic expertise, and I wonder what you think about it in that consumables and consumer-facing point, especially when, if you do get a tax cut, some of the providers don't pass it on. Well, that's, yes, I mean, the, another crazy uh, sort of knee-jerk idea that the government has had is to investigate petrol stations for not <laughs> passing on uh, reductions in, in, in the price in, in the oil prices. So I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I would rather trust the free market to deal with that over uh, you know over a period of time because let's face it, the providers, the, the vendors of these goods and services have their own costs and overheads that they need to uh, to also reflect in the price. You know, energy prices is a huge driver of inflation. So all of these um, Supplies of goods and services wages, are suffering yeah. as well. Wages. So I'm not. I'm not sure we can necessarily blame um, the, the, the 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 sellers of goods and services for not automatically passing any any you know any re reduction in, in fuel duty or, or, or a cut in the oil price because business is hard um, for for everyone. Can I ask you a question about that point you just made about the free market? Because you mentioned it in the context of energy prices. And it occurs to me that actually we don't really have a free market in energy prices because we have a price cap and everyone, such as the cost of, uh, of, the, um, of the material currently, everyone charges up to the cap. So on the one hand, there is no real competition and there's no, um, there's no free market. On the other hand, if you were to unleash the forces of the free market, I dare say many consumers wouldn't be thanking you. Um, so what's, what's your position on that? Well, we haven't had a free market in domestic retail um, energy prices for a long time, certainly um, since Theresa May's price cap. But even before that, there were so many interventions, subsidies, um, regulations, that it was, it was a very distorted market. The price cap had already been a failure um, because of that clustering effect that, that you just mentioned. Uh, so I, I sort of agree in a sentence that removing the price cap now now might have oh. worse effects because the market is so broken that it needs to the, the reforms to the energy market needs to be more than simply removing the price cap it needs to be a root and branch review to actually uh, create cre recreate the sort of um, market in in the utilities um, that the, the the Thatcher era and subsequent reforms actually had in mind Chris, should we be, should we have price caps? What's the IEA perspective? Well, no, we shouldn't do. But also, I have to say, I don't think we should be having energy sanctions on Russia. They're being totally counterproductive. Um, you know, the oil, we're paying £2 a litre now for petrol and diesel. 
Russia's never made more money out of oil. It's not working. The Russians are just selling it to the likes of China who are selling it on to somebody else. Or you know, selling it to India who's selling it on right, to us. Exactly. So it's, it's not working. It's fair enough trying it. Yeah? I can understand why they wanted to do it. I, I want to punish Russia as next, uh, much as the next man. But it's not working. When something doesn't work and is absolutely counterproductive and is impoverishing you while enriching your enemy, surely you just go, well, this isn't, this, we're going to stop doing this, right? And I, I hate to use the word virtual, virtue signaling, but you know, it's, that's the only reason at this point to do that. Doesn't that virtue signaling seem particularly weird when the Germans are still directly giving the Russians money with Nord Stream yeah. 1? Right, yeah, I mean, but, but well, how much do you want to cut off your nose to spite your face? Well, the Germans have, have done, you know, arguably what we should have done, which is protect the interests of their own citizens and businesses, first and foremost. Um, you know, as Chris says, we, we want to sanction Russia. Of course we do, but we are not sure it's fair to do that at the expense of the poorest people in our own country. Especially if it's not working. It's if, not especially it's if it's so not even having working. the opposite effect. It's yes. very interesting, because I see... I have, I have in my hand uh, <laughs> some polling from mem uh, citizens of the, members of the G7 um, countries who voted that Britain's response to the Ukraine situation was the best of the responses that's been offered by the Western powers. Uh, so it seems to me you're disagreeing with that, actually, on, at least on this point. Well, perhaps they more had in mind uh, shipping them weapons yeah. to, to defend themselves yeah. rather than anything anything else um, I mean there has been I dare say people were quite glad in a, in a in a slightly worrying populist way to see the Russian oligarchs punished and uh, Abramovich getting his comeuppance which I'm also a little bit uncomfortable about I must say uh, so perhaps that contributes as well to the positive response in the polling yeah just to wrap things up on Ukraine um Chris, what's your perspective on that idea that the government in the end gets judged by, because I, I cut you off when you were talking about um, coronavirus response, a lot of people would defend the government by saying the biggest, most important call is, is the response to Ukraine and they basically got it right. Is that a contention you accept? Yeah, well, I think I think the, the UK did better than any other country. I mean, Zelensky seems to say that. Maybe he says that to everyone. I don't know. No, uh, I, I think he'd get caught <laughs> if he did. I think it would be quite obvious if, if he did. So say yeah, it. it's a great response, but you know, it just involves spending a huge amount of money. You know, Boris yeah. is very good at spending a huge amount of money. So the, the response to COVID is considered the, the, a great success. And when I say the response to COVID, I don't mean what I was talking about, about having freedom earlier than the rest of Europe. I mean locking us down. If you look at the polls. The peak in Boris Johnson's popularity is always we're in the middle of lockdown. Yes. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we, we're our lockdown, it goes straight down again. Treat and now, worse. Treat and now, worse. And now we're not going to be in lockdown again. It's never been worse, you know? So, you know, what, what do you people want out there? You know, what do you want? <laughs> well, I want to thank my panel, both those who are still here and those who've uh, just left us. And I want to thank you at home for, for watching. Uh, we're going to be back in a fortnight for another great show with me as Mark's uh, stunt double. I'd like you to like and subscribe. Uh, on the YouTube channel and just one more thing um, Mark can't say this because he's employed by the IEA but I'm not so I can financially supporting the Institute of Economic Affairs is one of the best things you can do to promulgate freedom and the free markets in this country that's why I personally contribute financially to the IEA and that's why I'm asking you to do that tonight I want to give a big thanks to the top-tier IEA online patrons, Andrew Hunt, Donald Blaney, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozouf, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby and Timothy Worrell. And I'd like you to join uh, them. Uh, thanks to watching the show. And if you want to support content like this, uh, please check out our Patreon account. Go to patreon.com slash IEA London or email us here at the IEA. And until next time, thank you very much for watching Live Without Littlewood. Uh -huh.